Well, good morning, everybody. It is so wonderful uh, to be back here with you today after an extended uh, absence during my sabbatical. I'm so excited to be able to share with you this morning from God's Word. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11. You can go ahead and prepare for that right now. Um, We are, as I mentioned, we were on sabbatical, so I spent um, all this time away and happy to be back here um, with you. But one of the things we did on our trip was we visited Washington, D.C. We got to go be tourists in Washington, D.C. Um, and we had, I'd been there just kind of like through Washington, but never spent any significant time there. So we got to spend time looking at all the sites, the monuments, the, the Capitol. We actually toured the Capitol building inside. It was amazing. Um, got to see all, all of this history, all of our nation's history. And, and it was an exciting time. But one of the things, one of the highlights, and if I had to be honest, one of the main reasons we went to Washington, D.C. was my wife wanted to go to a museum called the Bible Museum. And this museum, I think it's only been open for about three years. Um, it is a beautiful, state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line everything, designed in a beautiful way, six levels high, um, museum devoted to the Bible, Right? And so uh, for some of you, that sounds, oh, that's amazing. I want to go there just from that description. Some of you go, I'm not sure. That sounds a little boring. If you're being really honest, it's okay to be honest in church, right, that we can admit that. Um, But it was not boring. I have to say, if you ever have the opportunity to go there, you should go there. There are some exhibits that are just, you know, manuscripts and the Gutenberg Bible and all these things. And if you think that kind of stuff is boring, you might think that is boring. But there were other exhibits that were about the impact of the Bible on culture. There was this little room that we went in that was just played music that, kept, that referenced different parts of scripture. And there was mu- movie things that talked about the way the Bible has influenced movies and, and fashion and all these different areas of our culture. But one of the things that was super cool was on the second or third level of this giant museum was there was a, you walk up there and the main exhibit just says New Testament, Old Testament. And if you walk into the New Testament section, there's a theater where they have this um, kind of movie that you watch about the New Testament, but there's also like a recreation of New Testament Nazareth during Jesus' time, and you kind of walk around in there and, and see what everything looks like, and the different, there's a table set with all kinds of food, like the kind of food they would have eaten during Jesus' time, um, and how they would have worked, and the tools, and all this stuff, and that was neat. But then the other exhibit that just says Old Testament, and you walk into this little waiting room, and you're not sure what to expect. And they tell you very clearly at the beginning, hey, no photography during this Old Testament exhibit. And then you walk into this little room, and there's something that looks like a scroll that's unrolled up on the wall, and you sit on these benches in front of this um, screen. And then the performance begins, and it's this amazing retelling of the whole Old Testament from creation through the exile and the return from exile. So it's like the Old Testament, you know, 39 books of of the Old Testament over a 20-minute walkthrough exhibit. So you start by watching this little film that talks about creation, and then all of a sudden the wall starts moving in the room that you're in. And you see, it talks about the fall and the brokenness of sin and everything that came because of that. And you see like this wall begin to move and then you walk into the next room. And then you go through an exhibit that talks about the flood and there's all these animal sounds and pictures of animals. And then you you walk into another room and then they tell you the story of Abraham and Isaac. And and then another room, it, it talks about the Passover and the Red Sea crossing and um, it, it was incredible, this multi-sensory 
exhibit, and I know my description of it does not give it justice, but it was a whole telling of the story of the Old Testament of the Scripture. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was going through that exhibit, we went through it, I went through it twice, my wife and my daughter went through it three different times, Um, but one of the things that occurred to me was, I wish you were all there with me. Because it, is, it was such a beautiful display of the story of the Old Testament in this way that you could feel and hear and, and, and experience. And there was like a burning bush that looked like it was on fire. And there was this room that was like the rainbow room that represented God's covenant with Noah after the flood. It was it was beautiful um, description of what the Old Testament is in a way that you could experience it. So if you ever get the chance to go, this is not a paid endorsement, by the way. But if you ever get a chance to go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., you should do it and go to that exhibit in particular. But one of the things I loved about it is that it is the story of the Old Testament. And I've used that word several times. But this is such an important concept for us. The, the story of Scripture is a story, not in the sense that it's a myth or a fairy tale. It's something that's, that really happened in a way that God worked with real people as a real God. And it's a story that we ourselves get swept up in. We are a part of it. And this story of the Old Testament, the story of God's dealing with his people, um, it is important for us to consider when we think about in Romans 11, today because we're, we're picking up on this idea of what about Israel? What about all those 39 books and the way that God dealt with his people through the Old Testament? And now we get to this new covenant reality where we get to live, have a relationship with Jesus by grace through faith, and we get to be grafted into this story as God's people. How do we live out this new reality? So in as Dan mentioned a few weeks ago in his message, he talked about how uh, chap, you know, we, we spent three weeks as a church while I was gone on my sabbatical in chapter 8 of Romans. And Romans, is, Romans 8 is, is food for your soul. I encourage you to spend time reading Romans 8, reflecting on it. Some enterprising people out there might want to memorize that whole chapter because it's so good. There's so many amazing truths in there. It talks about how do we live on this side of the reality of being people who are justified by faith. It's super encouraging. And then you get to chapters 9 through 11, and Dan mentioned that sometimes people skip that part because it's like, why, why don't we just get right to chapter 12, which we will next Sunday. And chapter 12 is incredibly practical as well. And it's all about what the way Paul teaches in a lot of his letters is he says, this is the reality about who you are and about what Jesus has done. And then he says, now live this way. And Romans 12 is the now live this way part. Romans 12 through the end of the, the letter to the, to the book of Romans or to the people of the church of Rome. But sometimes people skip chapters 9 through 11 because it dives back deep into these theological concepts that maybe they want to be kind of done with after going through chapters 1 through 7. We did all that heavy lifting already. Let's just get right to the, 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 the good stuff, so to speak, right? Um, I want to say that I think chapters 9 through 11 are the good stuff too. It's more important concepts for us to consider. We have to wrestle with these topics like the sovereignty of God and what does God do about Israel now? After Jesus has come into this this world, he's come down and his earthly ministries happen and he's left his people to go spread the message about him and the churches are being established, the question is, well, what about Israel? What about all those promises God made to his people? 
What, what do we do at this, at this point? So Romans chapter 11, with those ideas in our mind, we're going to jump into Romans 11, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So to at any present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's stop and reflect for a few moments on what we just read there. The question at the beginning is this, has God rejected his people? And some of us in this room might might go like, I'm not super, um, this is not a critical question for me. Like I don't, I'm not super invested in the answer to this question and I want to tell you why you should be. You should be invested in this question because it has everything to do with God's character and God's promises. Does God keep his promises? Is God done with Israel? Has God rejected Israel? Is he done with them? We're going to have to talk about the story of scripture for a little bit. And I wish I could walk you through the exhibit in the Bible Museum, but my description will have to do for a little bit, right? The, The story of the Old Testament, the story of God's people and God's special place, the promised land, and a people that were blessed to be a blessing, that lived with God as their king, right? It's the story of a family. The nation of Israel started out as just a family. It was a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and their children, and their children eventually grew to be a nation, right? And that nation was, ended up in Egypt temporarily, uh, so to speak, because of famine, but ended up staying there for 400 years. And this nation of people were, went from having favored status in Egypt to being slaves in Egypt. But God promised to send a, a deliverer and to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And, of course, we know the story of Moses, how Moses was sent to Pharaoh, let my people go. God delivered his people through all this miraculous work and then brings them out into the, the wilderness to teach them and to form them and to shape them into the people that will be a blessing to all the nations, that will have this special relationship with God. He teaches them how he wants to be worshipped, how he wants their national life to go, and he makes a series of promises, starting back in Abraham's time, but continuing with Moses and then eventually with King David, and there's these promises made between God and his people. And I think this has been referenced in other messages, but if you study the, the covenant between God and, and Abraham, it's such a powerful story. Because the way covenants would work is that there'd be two parties, you know, the lesser party and the greater party that would meet up and make an arrangement with each other, and there'd be sacrificed animals on the ground. They would pass through between the halves of these animals, kind of a gross picture. But it's this idea of like, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me? 
And so Abraham's prepared the animals and he's ready to, to make this promise with God. And as Abraham sleeps, he kind of wakes up, I believe, or sees a vision. I have to reread that part of the scripture to remember exactly what happens. But he sees the, these two things pass through the animals. And what was happening in that moment was God was making the promise without him. He was making an unconditional, unbreakable bond with this family. Like, Abraham, I'm making promises to you and to your descendants that you will be my people and I have a plan for you and I will bless the world through your family. This covenant that's made. And then we have the covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, this covenant with David. And then over and over again in a discouraging way that you read every year if you do the Bible reading plan with us, we see the way Israel disobeys the way Israel breaks the covenant. They have this agreement with God that if we live this way, you will bless our nation. And if we disobey, all the way back in Deuteronomy, we're told what's going to happen to them. And that the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens. They're led into exile. They have these you know, armies that are invading them and all of these things. But God, in his grace, sends prophets to say, come back to the promise that you know and the promise of God. Come back. Even then, they disobey. They even kill some of the prophets. They're sent off into exile. But even then, God's not done with them. He brings them back to the promised land. And then by the end of the Old Testament, we get to this part where they're just longing for the Messiah who will come and make things right. They have all these very specific prophecies about where he's going to be born and what things will happen to him and all of this that's told in the story of the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and he's largely rejected by his people. But in spite of that, does God keep his promises? Yes, he does. Is, has God rejected his people? The answer is no, Paul says. God has not rejected Israel. And then he begins to give examples, and he talks about himself being example number one. He says, for me, for example, I am of the tribe. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's like, and I'm a part of what God is doing in this world. So I'm exhibit one of, of this, that God has not rejected his people. And then he goes on to tell the story of Elijah, just a brief you know, allusion to the story of Elijah, which we taught through this two years ago. So fall of 2021, we went through a series called Faith in a Time of Unbelief, where we taught through the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And I love when I get, we, we try to read the Bible together once a year as a church. And when we get to the part of First and Second Kings, where we start talking about Elijah and Elisha, it's always refreshing for me because they, those books can be kind of discouraging. This king did not follow the Lord like, their, like his father Abraham. And he was not faithful to the promises of God. And he was worshiping these false gods. And this nation invaded. And it's like, come on, you guys. And then you get to the story of Elijah and Elisha and how God is at work still, even in spite of these difficulties, even in spite of their disobedience. God's calling his people back to himself. And Elijah and Elisha are, are one of these components of God calling the people back to himself. But he's referencing the story of Elijah after the whole defeat of the prophets of Baal on the mountain. And Elijah's pretty sure that all the nation's going to turn back to God when they see how powerful he is. This display of fire falling from heaven and consuming the sacrifice. And rather than him coming back, or rather than all the nation turning back to God, Elijah finds himself on the run. He finds himself 
in danger of losing his life. And he's in despair, physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted under the broom tree. And he has this conversation with God that, that Paul retells here. Like, it's just me. They've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. And God's reply to him in this vulnerable condition, after he meets his very practical needs, gives him food, gives him rest, he says, no, 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 no. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, there's a remnant. There's a group that I've preserved. You're not alone. And Paul says, even in his time, there's a remnant. There's this group of, of Jewish believers in, in Jesus as their Messiah that are, that are turning to him and worshiping him. And he says, there's currently a remnant as well. But that's not it. There's, there's more to come that he'll talk about. Let's read verses 11 to 24. He says this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But, if you, stand, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were a cut from what is by a nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? All right, that's a lot. There's a lot going on in that passage. We're going to talk about this image of the olive tree, right? So this is this agricultural image of a branch that has been grafted into an olive tree. And um, my wife and I, we, we have in our backyard an apple tree that supposedly, although it hasn't done this yet, has like five different kinds of apples that it will grow. We bought it from Costco a couple of years ago. And when you buy a tree, you're, in, you're making like a years-long investment. You know, someday this is going to pay off here. But it's supposed to grow like, you know, Gala apples, Fuji, all these different kinds of apples because each branch is a different type of, of apple. And this is this someone at some point grafted these things together and made this tree where it had, had a branch from this thing and, and all of this, but it was grafted together. So now it looks like one tree all together that grows different kinds of apples. And Paul uses this similar image to talk about the people of Israel as this image of an olive tree and then the non-Israelite people getting grafted in, the, the, the Gentiles getting to benefit from the nourishment and the story and the history and the promises 
of the people of God. We get grafted in, placed into this rich history of the way God's worked with his people. We get to be included in this idea of being the people of God, even if, we didn't, if we're not from the Jewish people by birth. Um, the olive tree is a symbol for Israel often in the Bible, but Paul says here a couple of times, he says the reason, he said one of the things that I emphasize is I'm trying to make Israel jealous, which is an interesting idea. Like I want, I want them to see the way you relate to God and I want them to want that too. And I want them to, to turn to him. And he says, imagine out of their disobedience, all of these amazing things happen. He says, their trespass means riches for the world. And their failure means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? He says, if God brought all these amazing things out of the, the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, how many more amazing things would come for their acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah? Remember that at this time in the Jewish church, there's this conflict, or in the Roman church, conflict between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. That, that largely the Roman church was probably mostly Jewish people. At one point, the Caesar in charge just kicked out all the Jewish people and said, you have to leave. So then the Roman church became largely Gentile. And then eventually the Jewish people were allowed to return. And there was a conflict between them, like a rivalry and some weirdness in their relationship between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. And Paul has been addressing that little by little through the book here. And he gets to this point and says, hey, there's no arrogance. You Gentile Christians that have accepted Jesus, don't let that be arrogant or make you treat the Jewish people as less than in any way. He says, you, you've been grafted in. You're, you're kind of drafting off of them in some way. We get to benefit from the Jewish people's story and, and the promises and all of this. But to deal with this conflict... But we need to talk about this idea of the Jewish people rejecting just a little bit um, during Jesus' time. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 tell the story of, of Jesus in this, in this beautifully poetic way. And it says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the story, right? Jesus comes to his people. The long-awaited and prophesied Messiah is here. And they don't recognize him. And there's this tragedy to that story. But then if that's not tragic enough, it continues after his resurrection. Many Jewish people come to faith at the, on the day of Pentecost. But then as the missionary journeys begin and Paul and his companions and the other missionaries are traveling all over the ancient world at that time, their strategy was to always start at the synagogue. Go to the synagogue where the Jewish people gather and tell them the Messiah is here. Tell them about Jesus. And then they, they would largely get rejected out of the, this group. Some people would believe, many would not. And then they would go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were largely receptive, even though they didn't have the framework or the history or the background for any of this. They're like, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not sure what most of those words mean in that sentence. But Jesus sounds very appealing, and I want him in my life. And so the Gentiles are responding in droves to the good news of Jesus, to the point where the Roman Empire just shifts population from being pagan to Christian 
within a few generations. He says, if their unbelief made it possible for you to know God, what will their belief mean for the world? Romans 8.28 says, uh, this was from a few weeks ago, but we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That even this heartbreaking situation of the Jewish people been waiting for their Messiah, when he finally comes, they reject him. Largely. Not completely. But even that brought good because the Gentiles were able to come to, come to faith in him. Romans 11, uh, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Um, I want to read that portion here. It says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospels, gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God has a plan, and his plan is unstoppable. And we sometimes feel like God is not at work around us. We begin to think about, hey, the situation, what we can perceive, and the limits of our own perception. We look around ourselves, we read the news feeds that we get, or the news on the TV or in the paper or whatever, and we go, man, this world is in a dark place. And we begin to, you might even be, convince yourself that God is not at work, that God doesn't have a plan for this time. But God is at work even when situations are, are, look dark. And Paul is, in the previous chapter, talked about how he wants Israel to come to faith so much that he's willing even to forfeit his own salvation, if that was possible, for them to come to faith. He's like, I, I, these people, I want my nation, my people, my family to come to faith in Jesus, and he's heartbroken over it. And you might feel sometimes like there's particular groups of people that are really hard for God to meet, or God to, for them to meet God. We sometimes feel like God is not at work when we consider and we, we look around us. But God is, his plan is unstoppable. God's plans will come true. His promises are irrevocable. Paul says this pretty clearly that God's promises that he made to Israel are irrevocable. And God has a plan. And this is, this is tough concepts for us to wade through. But he says all Israel will be saved. He says after the fullness of the Gentiles. That there's some way God is working right now and a way that he plans to work in the future. 
And there's a lot of theologians that will discuss exactly what this means, but it seems to me that God is certainly not done with Israel and not done with his people, and that God has a plan for like the fullness of time to bring Israel in large numbers to faith in him even more than we've experienced up to this point. So there's something that is, is still to come that Paul says, this is on the way. And so, like, is God done with Israel? No. I don't know how you can read Romans 11 and go, yeah, God, like, the church is Israel. The church has replaced Israel. All those promises are null and void now, and the church has them, which some theologians do. And I disagree with them. I think Romans 11 teaches that God has a plan for Israel, that there is still good news to come. And so we pray for the Jewish people. We, we want to see God... Um, that they see them recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and I believe they will. Something that we need to be praying about and looking forward to. Paul calls all this a mystery. He says there's, in this concept of a mystery in Scripture, just means something that was hidden, something that was in God's heart, but like hidden to us, and then revealed. It's now revealed. And so Paul says the way God is working right now is this mysterious thing where this temporarily thing that's happening between Israel and the Gentiles, but God has a plan. God has a plan for this. We're coming up to a turning point in the book, as I mentioned. Romans 12 is going to be super practical. If you had a hard time with like chapters 9 through 11, I encourage you to you know, buckle up for chapter 12. There's a lot of practical information there for us that help us live the Christian life, help us walk this out, all these deep truths. But Paul has been climbing and climbing and climbing theologically, when we use this word theology, this, this is a, a word to describe like the, the mind of God, the heart of God, understanding God more. It's the study of God and his teachings and our belief about God. And Paul has been going deep, right? We've seen it. I mean, this one, this week is in particular, but among others, chapters one through seven are some deep water there. Chapters nine through 11, back to the depths again. And to switch the metaphor, he's been climbing this mountain, so to speak. And he finally gets to this point where he just says that I have nothing left to do. I've gone as deep as I can go. Reached my limits in understanding God and his ways. And now I must worship. And that is the end of Romans 11 there. I want to reread these verses because I think it's, it's where we need to be. It's where we need to rest. It's where we need to settle in. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying, he's quoting several different passages, Isaiah 40, Job 41, and then in just his own words of reflecting on the depth of God and his work. He says it's deep and it's rich. His wisdom and his knowledge are unsearchable. When you ponder who God is and when you ponder God at work, you're going to quickly reach your limits. You're going to run out of your capacity to comprehend an infinite God. And when you do that, which we often do, like I don't see how God is at work in this. I don't see what God is doing right now. I'm at my limit. I know God is always working. 
I'm not seeing it right now. I don't understand all of the stuff about Israel or all the stuff about God's sovereignty. I'm at my limit. I've reached my limit. What we do in those moments is we trust the character of God. We trust what we know about God. Say, God is good. God keeps his promises. God never fails. God is love. God God knows what I need before I ask him when I pray, but he still wants me to pray to him. He still wants me to worship him. He still wants me to come into his presence. Do you ever give God advice or you think you know how God should do something? Like, God, I think this is the way you should work this situation out. I think we can bring our prayers to God. We're invited to do that. But this, says, this passage says, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, that God's ways are far higher than we can ever go. And that God actually doesn't need our help. Right? God, God is self-sustaining, self-sufficient, infinite, all-powerful. He doesn't need our help, but we get to join him in his work. How beautiful is that? We get invited to be a part of what he's doing in this world just because he loves us, not because we, we, we can need to fix what he can't do by himself or something, right? Job 41.11 um, is a, the reference there in, in verse 35. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This is Paul quoting Job 41.11. We, we can't like pay God back anything, like we, we, he is self-sufficient, he doesn't need us, right? But we get to be a part of what he's doing. And then he says, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He's referencing Job, and we just read this recently in our Bible reading plan. And in the book of Job, we, we see Job go through all of these horrible situations, and he's left with all these questions. And his friends give him more questions. So his, his friends are just convinced that he's done something to deserve this series of tragedies that he's experienced. And they, he just back and forth, conversation between Job and his friends, and it's 40-something chapters, right? And... Job is just wrestling with God. Why, does, why, does these things, why do these things happen? He's also defending himself. He has questions for God. He has defenses against his, his friends. And at the end of the book of Job, God speaks. And God asks Job questions. Job, where were you when I threw the stars in the sky? Do you know how, how I do what I do and how creation works from behind the scenes and, and all these things and holding creation together and speaking and things happening. Job, what do you think about all that? And then Job, without getting his questions answered, realizes that he gets what he needed, which is God. And then the questions seem to just fade. He's reached the limit of his understanding, but... God's presence is what he needed. God's character, God's love for him. And this changes everything. So Job stands in the presence of God, and that's what he needed. And we need that as well. And when we get to our limits of our understanding about what God is doing in this world or what God is doing in my life or what God's plans are, we sometimes just need to stop and do what Paul did and worship him. And we're going to do that. We're going to spend some time worshiping him right now. 
And we're also going to receive communion together this morning as a part of our worship. But this, what we're doing when we do this is we're, we're getting small. I heard an interview with a um, happiness researcher from Harvard named Arthur Brooks who was talking in this interview. He's a, he's a Catholic. He's a, he's a Christian and um, part of the Catholic faith. And he said that um, what he needs to do sometimes in, in his study of happiness, something that's very important is to get small. And he says, I do that through prayer. I do that through you know, contemplation of God's creation. I, I, sometimes I get, my ego gets so big, my concerns get so big, and what I need to do is just get myself appropriately small again before God. And that's what we need to do as well. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Worship team's going to come back up here, and then I'll introduce our communion time. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of reflecting upon these deep truths. And Lord, sometimes we, we quickly reach our limit. Lord, I, I'm at my limit with, the, with being able to understand everything the Apostle Paul's talking about in the book of Romans and just even your plans for the world and how all that's going to work out and the debate about everything. Lord, we just we get to our limit and what we need to do when we get hit our limit is trust your character. And one of the ways that we express our trust in your character is through our worship. And we need you, Lord. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. And I need to trust that. Whether that's in situations around me, whether that's in the world at large. Lord, you are at work in ways that we are sometimes blind to. So Lord, open our eyes so that we can see the wonderful things that you're doing. And help us to trust your character. Help us to express that now through our worship. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.